0: Wonder working in the Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. Genesis 6.4 Looking back, I can cleanly cut my life into three stages. These three parts now seem cleanly divided by aesthetic and by circumstance of life but I think they also um, trace my journey from belief to doubt to, to something past doubt, understanding maybe, or acceptance, though these words feel too limited to express the calm and even clarity which now I feel when I behold what my world has become. But the first stage, belief, I'll tell you how the first part of my life ended. I was born into a world very different from this. I want you to think about glass towers, how they shimmered in the humid summer twilight, catching colors from the bloody sunset, crowned with gardens, secret paradises of the sky. And though I was so far below and beyond these places, I knew there was a world Further down and further out, where things were also very different. We were always talking about these further places when I was young, before they rushed in and filled our world, about those camps and all the people living in them, and what a shame it was, and how there was nothing to be done about it. Now, at the end of the day, they didn't want our help, they only wanted what we had. You would sit in the dirty coffee shop down at the end of the street, feet kicking and swinging from your seat as your parents looked up at the news and muttered to one another, shaking their heads at the footage of rusting, corrugated tin, of particle board walls collapsing with mold, of children your own age looking at the camera as if to meet your eye, finding you as much a spectacle as you found them. But people like me were lucky enough to live inside the fences i for example was lucky enough to be born a slave i know how that sounds (laughs) but in the world in which we lived a slave was just about the best thing you could hope to be it meant you got to live among the angels air conditioning when the heat was 45 degrees outside chef cooked meals clean clothes and free time phones new enough to be secure <laughs> And it never occurred to us of course that we were slaves we would have taken great affront we were free citizens it was our contracts that were the property never mind my contract was three generations old or that its owners saw no distinction between the piece of paper and me but of course i was free i had pocket money and the vote how could I be anything but? But either way, when I was young, it didn't matter to me that I was tied to the Rimini estate. There was nowhere else in the world I wanted to go. Because from the age of five, I was in love with the woman who owned me. <laughs> Let me tell you more about this angel of mine. Her name was Jasper Rimmen, and she was three years older than I was. Her father was an astrotech billionaire and former senator for Ontario. She was his ninth child by his third wife, and he was 82 years old when she was born. And she was the most physically perfect human being who has ever lived. Please understand, I'm not being mushy or hyperbolic. So far as I'm aware, it's a cold statement of fact. She was designed for perfection. By the age of ten, she stood six feet two and could run a four-minute mile. Her hair was the same unnatural shade of black some people used to coat their automobiles. She was immune to most poisons, and once, uh, during a rebellious phase of adolescence, spent six months regrowing an arm she had cut off deliberately. Her singing voice was miraculous. She spoke fifteen languages and could play any instrument within minutes of picking it up. I remember she once spent a week sulking because she'd taken an IQ test and scored below two hundred. She was, in short, a perfectly ordinary girl of her class, station, and engineering. But to me, she was a being set apart from mere humanity. I learned different the year I turned twenty one. That summer my alarm chimed at four thirty one morning, automatically flicking on the white fluorescence of my windowless little room-terrible way to wake. I had worked a double shift the evening before, but I was on call, and since it was not unheard of for servants to be called at that hour, I threw on some deodorant and a clean shirt and wiped the sleep from my eyes in the five inch mirror of my washstand. I slid out of my room, quietly, controlling the noise latch so as not to wake my neighbors behind their paper doors. Then, realizing I'd wasted ninety seconds already, I hurried down corridors that ran parallel to the sky. The aesthetic of those towers was all the same, somewhere between minimalist and soulless. The walls, smooth on one side with pale polished wood, and bounded on the other by a rain-streaked, bullet-stopping glass. No lighting on the walls, for below your rushing feet the marble floor was lit from underneath. Miles, it seemed, of corridors like these, for the towers all wove and intertwined through skyways and skyways and layer after layer of keycard-activated doors, a sort of Neo-Bossa Nova humming through the hidden speakers every hour of the day, The rich who lived in these towers could navigate by smell or internal GPS. The poor who worked there had to learn the maze by memory. But I knew my route very well. I had often practiced it, lovesick, so I could bring her anything she asked upon a moment's notice. Now the long-awaited hour had arrived, and when I came to the door of her suite, I, I stood there for a long moment, trembling like a novice at the temple gates. Then I forced myself to knock. A moment later, the door chimed and slid open. Inside, Jasper's penthouse, was a tasteful vastness, the kind of place I'd only seen on television. Each restrained and elegant piece of furniture worth a year's tuition at a top-flight school, the kitchen backsplash marble serpentine, all faucets white gold pretending to be common chrome, The lights were set to fuchsia, and the speakers mumbled with a hazy synth. I found her waiting at the balcony with a crystal tumbler splintering between long fingers, the moon beyond her setting against a brown sky, against the shattered clouds of an ending storm. The reflection of its light was greasy on the sluggish surface of the lake, on the brassy dullness of her dress, she had been at uh, some event, some party, I supposed. Viciously beautiful, her hair straight, lips and nails black, no contacts, her eyes their natural and unnerving shade of fuchsia, black corundum shining from her heeled boots, six and a half feet tall, without the heel's help. She blinked at my sudden arrival. "Who are you?" I realized then she was perilously drunk. I, uh, I, you called for one of the staff. She swayed for a moment, then managed to make her words come clear by force of will. Right, yes, I guess I didn't want to be alone. She raised her dangling glass to her temple. Brown liquor and ice, its outside perspiring cold, given her biology she'd likely had to drink two full bottles of Greenland Single Malt to get this drunk. "'It's all gone to shit,' she suddenly exclaimed, gesturing out of the world, at the stagnant lake, the treeless yellow summer. "'Hasn't it? All fucked up beyond repair?' "'It'll be okay, Miss Ruman,' I said this automatically. "'Servant's boilerplate.' We'll figure things out. We always have before. (laughs) Ah. She tossed her black hair and looked at me. uh, Amused contempt. You just have to say that. or, Or maybe you're so ignorant you actually believe it. But I surprised both her and myself when I told her forcefully that it will be okay. The words came out of me like that because... "'Because I loved her, and I had such faith in love, "'I I knew the world would be saved.' "'She stopped short, "'unused to servants speaking that way. "'It made her pay attention. "'Turning, she leaned back over the railing on her elbows "'to stare down the length of her body at me. "'Considering, well, if you say so,' "'she said at length.' And seeing how uncomfortable I was with the way she looked at me, she laughed. Guess you're the expert, after all. She thrust out the arm with a tumbler in my direction. Drink? This offer put me in an uncomfortable position. Miss Rimmen, we're not supposed to. She cut me off. I insist. Had I been free, as I believed, I might have argued further. But instead I gave way, accepting the glass and taking a sip. It tasted like the smell of caustic soda. I'd never had anything like it. Too good, I lied, coughing. It's the best thing you ever drank, she informed me. Have another sip. A real one, this time. She made me finish the glass. Now, put it down. I did. And then... Another long, awkward silence as she just looked at me. Something predatory about that stare, like mating the eyes of a hawk. The smell of liquor rising from her breath and sweat was inhumane, like the scent of a, a, a tiger, a great machine, an angel from the Old Testament. Tell me something. She raised her chin, pettiness mixed with command in her voice. "'Am I pretty?' (laughs) "'Is a knife pretty? "'Is lightning?' "'Of course, Miss Rimmen, "'but in an ordinary sort of way. "'I would have laughed if I weren't so intimidated. "'That's... uh, "'That's not exactly how I would put it, Miss Rimmen.' "'She fumbled with her phone, "'pulling up photos of other women from that evening's party. "'Women like her the odd striking eyes of the new rich, with angular planes and faces and sharp nails, not as pretty as her, for example, or her, or her. These women she obsessed over were, were all beautiful, unearthly like she was, and yet there was something unsettling about each of them as well. They were too tall or, or too thin or, or too abruptly curved, their features too sharp, too optimized for high cheekbones, large eyes, and pointed chins. It was uh, It was as though Jasper's beauty had been engineered to the threshold of what the baseline human brain could see as human. And theirs had been engineered beyond, "'I think you're much more beautiful than any of them are, Miss Rimmen.' "'She tossed down her phone with a snarl. "'Don't lie to me. "'I know what I look like. "'Plain Jane, country girl from the territories. "'I might as well be a normal.' "'Then she remembered who she was talking to. "'No offense,' she muttered. "'Done taken, Miss Rimmen.' "'Ah!' "'She threw herself into a chaise lounge,' burying that angelic face in her talons. What am I going to do? Is there anything I can do to help? I ventured. She looked out between her fingers. You're sweet. The dismissive compliment gave me a little rush of pleasure. But we're fucked. Just can't keep up. Dad can't borrow any more, and the whole house of cards is falling. He's as good as told me. Not that he needs to, because I'm not stupid. Why breed someone smarter than you when you're just going to treat them like a fucking baby? I'm sure your father only wants what's best. She suddenly bared her teeth and lunged forward on the chaise. My heart almost stopped. Even seated, she was nearly my height. That's such an automatic response. They've really got you programmed, you know. Suddenly, I was aware of the physical threat she posed. Though long and slender, her muscles were not like mine, her bones not like my bones. I'd seen smaller women of her class dent brass with their bare fingertips. But then, her fingertips, for all their awful strength, were cool as they seized my wrist, "'and gentle as they brushed the underside where soft veins flowed. "'What if?' she asked me. "'What if you did something natural for once?' "'And though her eyes were strange from alcohol and what they'd done to her genes, "'there was real need there, "'all mingled up with pride, contempt, and cruel intent.' She stood, looked down at me, put a hand on my neck, gentle but aware of its own strength, and for most of my life since then, uh, I've had confused feelings about what happened the rest of that night. But at the time, I thought I'd been transported into heavenly realms. And then... The second stage. Doubt. Needless to say, this marked the end of that first chapter of my life. Understand that I had known nothing, nothing of the world outside the Brimman estate. Quite literally, I had never been outside parts of the city they directly owned. But two weeks after my encounter with Jasper... I woke to find an email from the Rimmen family lawyers explaining my contract had been sold out and I was to vacate the premises that morning. No warning, no apology, no time to say farewell to the only people I'd ever known. Of course, I could still come visit my parents on weekends, just book time through front of house three weeks in advance. It's still hard for me to remember that morning without helpless rage rising up in my chest. They sent the house manager and security to escort me off property, away from my family, my memories, the people who had taught me to read and say please and thank you and brush my teeth, who had celebrated my birthdays and comforted me when I wept, who had been my world, and away from the Rimmons, who had been more than my employers, who had been my religion, Exile. Domicide, the murder of my world, thrust into a great, strange, dangerous city not knowing who I was or what I was for any longer, or what the point of surviving even was. And yet, I was also very lucky. My contract had been sold to a catering firm, and because of my upbringing and service, they were eager to have me. I could look presentable and talk up, I was suitable for customer-facing work, and it had become difficult to find people like that who you didn't have to train. And though the days were often sixteen hours, the shifts were safer than they'd have been if I was working back of house. Kitchen work was extremely dangerous. Even people raised to it were routinely burned or suffered bad falls, or were crushed in cramped and overstocked warehouses. If I'd been less lucky, I I might have become unable to work. I might have fallen through but i was also lucky in the people i was surrounded with i'd been raised to believe ordinary people were cruel and stupid unsalvageable and certainly i did need people like that but if that narrative had been true i never would have survived but i did and i survived because On my first day, one of the men I worked with took me by both hands and looked me in the eyes and told me I was going to survive. I survived because when my appendix burst, the other servers on my rotation took longer hours and split their weight to cover mine while I recovered. I survived because I took on heavy lifting when I was young and because when I was older, the younger servers took it back from me. I survived because despite everything, everything stacked against them. The people I worked with used scarce time and scarce resources to help me to survive. I will never forget that. And in spite of everything, I will never, ever stop loving the human animal because of it. Now, during those years, I seldom saw any of the new rich except on TV or in movies. And there was something surreal about the filmed art of that time, because the stories were the same as they'd ever been, but the actors were, of course, old, new, rich. And so when you saved up your script and went to see a remake of Pride and Prejudice or, or something like that, the actors would all be wearing makeup and contacts to make them look like a, a normal of the year 17-something. But you could never quite buy it, because the shape of them was wrong. The clothes wouldn't hang right, and no number of film tricks could stop you from noticing how different the principal cast looked compared to the extras. At first, the effect was mild. You'd be sitting in the theater, immersed in the story, and then suddenly realize how strange it was that someone playing the son of a farmer should be so tall, so strangely muscled, should move so differently from anyone you'd ever met. And then you'd sit in that theatre for the next ninety minutes, trying to find your way back into the story, but not quite being able to make it. You'd spend that time sitting in this uncanny sense of alienation, looking quietly from left to right to see if anybody else was feeling it. You'd walk away, saying to your friends, I just didn't believe him in the role. But then, as the years decayed into decades... The look of the new rich became so pronounced that you couldn't even pretend to suspend disbelief. It was one thing when every leading man had been six foot six, but as I entered my late thirties they all started creeping past seven feet, with seventy-inch chests that bulged above a wasp-like waist of thirty-two. And Their faces got all wrong, and, and then their hands. You'd sit in the theater's flickering light, and what you were watching barely even pretended to be a story anymore. You were watching something that belonged to its own new genre a type of pantomime put on more for the performers sake than for the audience where every movement every gesture of the players loomed out the screen to look the audience in the eyes and say in a stage whisper none of this is real and the first time you saw a show like this it was funny and absurd and made you snicker in your seat and then walk home making fun of the actor. Who who does he think he is? But then the next film you saw was just the same, and then the next, and then the next, until it made you faintly sick to see a movie, but you still went anyway, because it was what people did. And it made you sick because what were we even doing there anymore? What was the point of the exercise? And what was our role? I saw her once in one of those pictures. Jasper Wyman, long-lost love. I hadn't known she'd become an actress until there she was one day, twenty meters tall on the screen, and more godlike even than the girl had known. I was a man in my forties by then, my hair turned papery and thin on top, and liver spots already beginning to come out like dim stars on the back of my hands and there she was, above me, as slim and clear-skinned and dark-haired as I remembered. And yet time had worked upon her by its own strange method. For she had changed herself, aligned herself more with the beauty standards of her class and day, her eyes larger now, her cheekbones wide and outthrust like elbows, her chin lathed to complete point, and below her wide angular shoulders, her body swooping in to a point with a spine connected into jutting hips, her legs exaggeratedly long, creating a look that passed the limits of stylized and into the realms of insectile. Gone the days when she could run a mile in ninety seconds, such adolescent sports behind her now, her energies channeled toward contests of a more rarefied kind. She was quite literally a different person than the one who I'd known. After the film, when I searched her online, I learned she had a son. And if you can believe it, after all those years and all that betrayal and all those changes, I still felt a pang of heartbreak to know she'd found love with someone else and born a child out of love. I was a fool, but it hurt. And, though I didn't understand what she had tried to turn herself into, I still... Some part of me loved part of her. In the years that followed, I would see her films alone from time to time, treasuring up the sweet pain it caused me to see her face. Until the day came at last, I didn't recognize her. One day, in my fifties, they came for me as I was leaving the theater. Four men with shaved heads and metal parts, all crammed into black suits, climbing out of a black SUV and asking me to join them. I did as I was told without asking any questions, because that was what you did in those days. If that makes us impassive, well, we were passive. It was what you did in those days. Inside the black SUV they offered me a blindfold and I put it on myself before they tightened it roughly. The car drove for a long time and none of the men spoke except in low, headset murmurs that I couldn't catch. Eventually we slowed, parked, and strong hands ushered me out of the vehicle to the gas-scented cool of a leading dock and then into the stuffy warmth of a service elevator. And then, after a long ride, a long-forgotten feeling of marble floors beneath my feet, of corridors winding through the sky. Then the steering hands released me somewhere where a bright light was shining on the other side of my blindfold. It took me a long time to realize they had left me there. Since they had given no instruction, I assumed it was safe to pull the blindfold over my head. What I found was the dizzying lens of a huge, semicircular window; vast heights veered below me; a sunset horizon tinged orange with the smoke of distant wildfires; and golden skyscrapers rising around me like a pine thicket, like sarsen stones that channeled evening light; cars and pedestrians, inconsequential carpet beetles in the shadowed depths below. I realized they had brought me to the Malvern one of the best addresses in the city. Beautiful, isn't it? The kind of voice so deep you feel it in your chest. I turned around and saw only darkness, for this room where they had brought me took up the entire floor of the building, and only this one tranche of windows was opened up to the light. But as my eyes adjusted, a great dark shape revealed itself against the darkness. An enormous man, enthroned upon a mighty seat of square black leather. His piercing, fuchsia eyes glowed softly in the gloom. But not to last, I think. A mighty sadness in that mighty voice. You will have been following the news. I shook my head. Uh, uh, No, sir, not... um, "'Well, except here and there, "'reading the ticker when I see the TV at work. "'I had the impression of great brows knitting. "'No. "'He seemed perturbed by my lack of civic-mindedness. "'I had hoped to find you more. "'But he trailed off. "'More what, he did not say. "'Instead, he stood amongst a lengthening of shadows "'and a creaking of leather. "'His head brushed the ceilings.' which were very high. The pressure of those pink eyes was like a headache. "'Come,' he commanded. "'Let me have a look at you.' My feet did not want to approach, but, as I said, I was born a slave. It was dizzying to draw near him. For someone who has never known a world with large land animals— How can I explain what it would be like to approach the bloody feet of a bull elephant, to swim above the crushing darkness of a killer whale? The experience was something like that, because this man quite easily cleared nine feet, and his shoulders were far wider than I was tall. His bespoke suit was of an immaculate charcoal grey, and I could not imagine how many priceless dozen yards of woolen cloth had gone into making it, His skin was deeply tanned, with a faint iridescence of minuscule scales. His hair and short beard, the same color as his mother's, that radar-resisting black. His jaw like a lead cube, the shape of his eyes and facial bones all wrong, more suited to the aesthetics of buildings or of cars, I thought, than to those of the human face. Strange to think that he was only in his thirties. He looked both in the flower of youth and unspeakably ancient. At last I stood below him, the urge to prostrate myself almost impossible to resist. But he crouched before me like a parent with a child, raised one skull-crushing hand to gently touch my face. I have wanted... He spoke in a soft voice that made my teeth buzz to meet you for a very long time. But I have also put it off for a very long time. For my mother to have mated with a normal, I had always thought you must be someone special, someone who transcended his kind. But you're just an ordinary man, aren't you? Your mother... Jasper, then? Yes. He gave a deep sigh, studying my sloped shoulders, my thinning hair with compassion and disappointment. But why you? Why should she have chosen you to be my father? I don't know, I told him. But I knew the answer in my secret heart. It was because she'd wanted, just for one night, to be human. You disappoint me, my son told me. I do have need. I did hope to find a father. I I looked up to him, at at this giant, this strange and terrible being that had come to me. I reached out with one hand, but he pulled away. He stood, and his great height put him well beyond my reach. "'No,' he said. "'I was a fool to think so. "'You are nothing. "'My code is all designed. "'Whatever of you remains in me is only incidental. "'I am more the designer's child than yours.' "'How can you know that?' I asked him, "'surprising myself with the force of my own voice.' as I had with Jasper all those years before, when you haven't heard me say five words. But he was not his mother, and my insolence did not intrigue him. He bared teeth like white chisels and rose to his full height. Begone, he told me from the darkness. You are nothing. <laughs> After all these years... I still feel the ghost of my love for Jasper. And after all these years, I still feel the ghost of hatred for our son. And finally, the third stage. Understanding, maybe. Or acceptance. I understand now why Tiberius Rimen had need of a father, when the Civil War came, it was much worse than any conflict of my lifetime or the decades leading up to it. My son was an important figure on what I still vaguely think of as our side, until his car was hit by a drone strike and the massive debris of his body was strewn across the morning news in dirty coffee shops at the ends of the streets. So huge, so full of terrible thought... But still burst like a bug in a piece of facial tissue. Brown hemolymph. It should come as no surprise to those who've been around that life continues normally even when the war is fifteen hundred meters from your door. You work, you sleep, if you're lucky. You turn on the fan to dull the gunfire's distant chatter. The far off explosions you assure yourself have failed to hurt anyone this time. You go to the movies now and then. They make a new Pride and Prejudice. Something interesting happened to movies during the war. They began casting normals again. Maybe because there were fewer new rich than there'd been a generation before. Fewer, though, much richer. It may have been that the war made them high-profile targets, and they preferred the security of their estates and compounds to the risks of ordinary life. And it may have been that they had changed too much, that they no longer cared about the little song and dance, the little pretense that they were anything like us. Because they weren't anymore. As I faded into old age, it was only the rich of my generation who still looked anything like my son had done when I met him. Now, almost twenty years before, among the younger generations of the rich, the tastes had changed in unanticipated ways. Where their grandparents and parents had taken the norms of human beauty to their extreme, and then to do extremes where the human eye and heart had refused to follow, the newer generation found such expressions gauche and backward-facing. They struck out boldly in new directions— When some heiress-turned-model gazed alluringly from the glossy cover of a fashion magazine you'd find half-buried in the rubble out of a bombed-out salon, the face was something new. One generation had emphasized bone structure, the next had drawn-out chins and cheekbones to the point of deformation. But now bone structure meant that the arch of the brow ran back in parallel channels over the head— A jawline was to be so high and thin that it clicked over the cheekbones as the small and toothless mouth opened and shut its tiny O. One generation had called for pointed, infantile chins. The next called for abolition altogether, and for the chin to merge seamless with the keel bone of the sternum. Though the fashion had been for huge doe eyes on cartoon scale, Now the eyes were meant to fill up the upper chambers of the skull, like a fly's eyes, huge and silky dark. Certain limits of size and strength had been achieved. The most beautiful woman in the world was twenty feet tall, but she never stood, for her rounded limbs, like Aphrodite's in a painting from the ancient world, could not support the vastness of her weight. Even with bones of bio-alloy, Muscles toughened up with self-made polymers. The inverse square law came to call. Previous generations had optimized their genes for strength or raw computing power. But in such a world as this as they had made for themselves, what need? They optimized now only for beauty. And what beauty meant had gone so far as to be beyond the reach of thought by... Lesser minds like yours are mine. And so it was that, at the beginning of the eighth decade of my life, the world came to be the way it is today. The war had long since petered out. One side had won and settled down upon the ruined world to contemplate their own beauty. Very few of them left now, The technology rusting that let them make their artful offspring with their daughters and their sons. Fewer and fewer all the time. And the rest of us begin anew. Growing thin crops on the dry rim of ruined cities. Doing what we can to help. As in a time when I was young and strong, we spent scarce resources on each other. Lavish, scarce time. Look at me. An old and ruined man. But they keep me alive, and I do what I can to help with the children and the cleaning and the chores. Barely useful, if I'm honest. But they keep me alive, and in spite of everything that's happened, I love the human animal for that. Am I happy? Maybe. But, to be quite honest, I liked life better as a slave. At least I was comfortable then. At least I was young. And even after living through the things that I have lived through, there is a hunger for luxury in me. I I so want to be rich, to be different and special, and live in a sky-top paradise and watch the little people work below me to be strong and big and irresistible. And so I'm afraid that we'll invent it all over again and live this cycle all, all over. I'm so afraid we will. Well, at least... (laughs) At least I won't be around to see it. One pleasant thing about this final act of my life... My granddaughter has come to live with me. She was delivered on a flatbed truck toward the end of the war. Mercy on the family of the defeated, I suppose, for she posed no threat to anybody then, and still does not. Each day I go and visit her, lying in peaceful repose on her bed of little hogweed underneath the shattered bulk of Malvern's gold-glass towers. She dreams away the days in perfect beauty. She is like a hill of cool flesh, all spotted over with dewy, fuchsia eyes. I don't know what she sees. Black feathers, the color of her grandmother's hair, sprout out from all those many arms. Unlike her father, or even her grandmother, whom I still love, I think that she truly is a superior being, for she has no head, no desires. She is not a monster like they were, like I would have been in their position. No, she is. Perfect. Symmetrical. A dreaming wheel. I don't know what will become of her when I am gone. But, for now, though she lies on cool, green earth, she flies. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, Nephilim was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Batello. Thank you to Joseph Chin, Alex Blackwell, Rabbits Watching, Brian Doherty, Ring Giddy, and Finley Carlson for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Alan Citrin and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and email us at at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.